All right. Welcome to a bonus episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Her name is Ashley Borer. She's an academic, activist, and public intellectual. She's an assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame and previously held a postdoctoral position at Hamilton College. Her research in the fields of philosophy, critical race studies, decolonial theory, intersectional feminism, and Marxism explores the intersections of capitalism, colonialism, racism, and heterosexism. She's also the new APA public philosophy blog editor. Uh, welcome, Ashley. Oh, and I'll say this uh, for a change, instead of us interviewing the guest, uh, she's going to be interviewing us today. Thanks so much for that wonderful introduction. And now no one has to listen to me talk about myself for the rest of the episode. This is all <laughs> about you all. Um, so why don't you just start off by talking a little bit about your backgrounds, sort of both individually and how you started the podcast together. Ooh, let's see. Who wants to go first? Alan? You can go first. <laughs> okay. Um, so my background is clinical and I'm a mental, I'm a clinical mental health counselor. So um, my background in philosophy is even deeper than that. So my first love was actually before it was psychology. My first love was philosophy. And so, um, okay, wow, this is like going way back. So this is going back about, I would say 10 years ago, something like that was when I first discovered Plato and sort of all of these different thinkers in the field. And so what meant so much to me about philosophy at the time, I remember is so, okay, let me connect this to the clinical part of it. So I am somebody who struggled with depression and anxiety since pretty much I can remember. And so before I even discovered psychology and I really understood like what therapy was or even cared about what therapy was, I discovered philosophy. And so what was so interesting to me about philosophy was the fact that I realized that with these particular truths, you can actually soothe yourself. So I, when I was a kid, I was really like terrified of death. And I was kind of terrified of like sort of the meaninglessness of life. And I was like, like, what does this all mean? Right. It's all really scary. I'm I'm like this kid thrust into the world and I really don't know how to make sense of it. And of course I was really anxious. And of course I had what's called existential dread, uh, existential anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so at the time I was thinking like, how do I soothe myself? Right. Um, maybe by finding out some universal truths, trying to figure out kind of what it's all about and how to make sense of it and how to navigate the world. And so it was then that I discovered Plato. And according to Plato, the world made sense. It was, um, it was this sort of, it was this sort of a uh, system, right? This system that had a person that had a purpose and had a pattern. And it was a system that if you kind of made sense of it, or if you understood how it worked, you really wouldn't be so afraid of it. So obviously for Plato, he believed in like, you know, kind of reincarnation and the afterlife. And he said there were these things as the forms and, you know, kind of as best as we can, we have like the standard that we try to live up to. And so my thinking was, oh, so there kind of are these right answers. And when you're thinking about these forms, that means there's sort of a way to live and you just kind of have to figure it out. And you don't really have to be afraid because here's this like afterlife and, you know, kind of Plato explained what it was. And so so for me, philosophy was very soothing, again, before therapy was very soothing, because it sort of helped me, it gave me a map to kind of, or a blueprint to navigate the world and to kind of make sense of it. So that's just kind of, you know, me with philosophy. I know Alan has a little bit of a different take on, you know, where his story uh, began. Oh, yeah. So where to begin? Well, in, in my family, uh, there's sort of a, a history of um, mental illness, right? And I... I guess as a child, I struggled to sort of understand why, why did people behave the way they did? Why, why did, uh, why did um, they get angry all the time? Why were, uh, why were these people uh, mad at me? Why would I get mad at them? What are the inner workings going on? Why, why is it that, uh, what motivates people, right? Uh, to, to 
act in the way they do. And I started to sort of try to understand that by sort of uh, fostering more of my uh, more of an interest in psychology and philosophy. So for example, um, I sort of come to certain uh, pieces of info, like uh, when people were projecting, let's say, like sometimes it wasn't that you're doing something wrong. Maybe, maybe it's that they're feeling something within themselves and they put that on you. And that can cause like layers of confusion in a, in a conversation. Because uh, maybe, maybe if you didn't know that they were projecting, you really think you're at fault. And then that could take you sort of down a, a, a different path in the conversation and you, and you get further and further away from a, from a solution. That's one example. Maybe also, um, I would say, uh, so one of the things that uh, gar also garnered my interest in, in this field was uh, learning about the ego, right? Uh, and the ego, um, there's different definitions for ego, depending what discipline you're looking at. If you're looking at Freud, you're looking at uh, different academics. But um, one that I particularly like to work with is uh, identification with thought, identification yeah. with uh, belief, identification with uh, feelings, right? And um, what's fascinating to me is the day that I learned that I wasn't my thoughts, I wasn't, I wasn't my beliefs, I wasn't uh, my feelings, I was something greater than that. It sort of, it, it opened me up to a different world, right? Whereas before, let's say, I would be subject to ruminating thoughts or certain fits of neuroticism or believing in every little thing that I would hear and being so reactive. The moment I learned that that's not really who I am, and that's not really who anyone is for that matter, that changed one, how I felt about myself and my life. And also it felt how I, it changed how I felt about other people and the way that they behaved in our conversations. And it actually, uh, people that before I used to argue with or have uh, disagreements or uh, just a bad, bad juju, bad vibes, right? Uh, it was, it, it shifted. We, we ended up being able to, to listen to each other. And I also thought that, wow, you know, who am I? Like for me to have learned this and learned a way to sort of uh, see into the inner goings on, like what, what's happening here? How could I actually have be vulnerable? How can someone else be vulnerable with me? How can we not necessarily do? How can we not do unnecessary things that lead to unnecessary suffering? And then I thought, okay, what if this could be taught? What if we can can this and teach it? Right? What if? What if there's a way that this can be made mainstream? Right? And then I, I started to see all these uh, po podcasts. Uh, things on the internet just becoming viral. And I was thinking, why can't this be viral? Like, why yeah. can't certain bits of info that are completely, that are so useful to everyone, why can't that be made popular? And then that little, just that little seed of a, of a thought led to just this, this journey that, that we're on. I mean, it's, it's, I'm kind of condensing it a little bit, but that's that's sort of the motivation for the podcast. I, I think Leon would agree. It's like you want to sort of get these ideas that aren't so popular to as many people as possible. And, you know, uh, I understand there's different people doing it, right? We have like Joe Rogan, we have Sam Harris, we have, uh, you name it, Timothy Ferris, uh, the list goes on. These are just the people that come to mind right now. 
And those people have huge followings. So like, why are we doing what we're doing? And I, I think that, I mean, here's the thing. If everyone thought that way, like, oh, well, let's leave it to the big guys, right? I mean, then there probably wouldn't be these the, those big guys in the first place because they thought that they could undertake something like that. They thought, if not me, then who? If not now, when, you know? And I don't know. Yeah. Well, well yeah. and then also, uh, so going back to kind of the way we started the podcast or why we started it. So I actually knew that, I, all right, let me not say I knew that we were going to start the podcast, but let's say I knew that something was going to happen the first time I was over Alan's place. So I know you, we can't see it on camera, but there's this like great bookshelf here. And so the first time I went over his house, I think there was a party or something that we were having. I think it was Thanksgiving. Yeah. So I walk into his room, I see this bookshelf and I'm like, oh, interesting. Cause I love perusing like people's bookshelves. So I look at his bookshelf and the first thing that catches my eye is Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meeting. And I was like, Alan, you read this? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, oh my God, like that's so amazing because I don't know that many people who even knew who Victor Frankl was. And so for me, I kind of knew there that there was something special or something could kind of happen in terms of, I don't know, not a podcast, but let's say in terms of potentially kind of moving forward and creating something that becomes a bit more public. So when we did the, when we kind of talked about it, right, um, you know, we just talked about the different interests that we had together. And Alan's like, well, yeah, this is how philosophy was important to me. Mentioned that Cartol he always frequently talks about the power of now and what that meant to him. We talked about Viktor Frankl and kind of how you use stoical thinking. And I mean, he's definitely obviously an existentialist too, but he used a lot of sort of stoical techniques to kind of help and um, soothe himself, obviously, while he was in Auschwitz. So we kind of talked about it. And then one day, I don't remember exactly how this came up. So I had a blog at the time, which I still do. Um, I had a blog that deals with like philosophy and mental health issues. And so the website that we're on, which is called the O4L Online Network, where um, so I pretty much, I wrote for them. I had a blog on that website and then I was talking to the founder of it, whose name is Vegas. And we were thinking like, Hey, you know, I mean, blogs are great. And obviously people like love to read, but the thing is, it's like, it doesn't reach as many people as potentially like a video series would, re would reach. So he and I spoke about it and he said, well, I mean, is there anything that you could think of that maybe we could do like video wise? So he mentioned that I create like, um, these like mental health type videos where I would do like tips or something like, you know, like ways to kind of overcome like burnout or ways to manage stress or something along those lines. And I thought about it and I was like, okay, that sounds like really good. It may be something to kind of give, you know, to shoot at or give a try or uh, like, I guess to try. Um, and then so, and then I thought about it and I said, wait, you know, Alan has all of these similar interests that I do. So I thought, huh, you know what? Maybe if we could like take this kind of type of video series and we sort of fuse our understandings together where we could kind of feed off of each other, maybe we would provide more value together than I would, you know, by myself. So I came to him and I said, hey, let's start a podcast. Literally, that was like all I said. I said, let's just start a podcast. And I was like, uh, okay, like, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> actually, sure, sure. actually, my first response was like, I think I said no. <laughs> I think I, I think I, I think I wasn't uh, for it immediately. But then but it wasn't uh, like a definitive no, it was more like, then then it then it went to, okay, what are we going to talk about and all of that? And yeah, what was your hesitation? Uh, what question. was the no? Where did the no come from? Mm. I just, I just felt like I, I, mm, I was, I wasn't sure what, what it was going to be like. I wasn't sure how we were going to execute this. What's the equipment that we're going to need? How are we going to get guests? Are we even thinking about guests? What are we going to talk about the first episode? Do I really want to put myself out there? Do you really want to put yourself out there? Right. And 
then when I started asking myself those questions, I thought, no, yes, yes, I actually do. I do want to put certain ideas out there. And I think having genuine, authentic conversations is a great way to do it. Because like that approach to having like uh, uh, videos of like, uh, these are your, uh, these are the seven steps or, uh, you know, these are some mental health tips. Those are actually very valuable. So I'm not discounting them. However, it's like, I, I felt like a podcast is interesting because as long as it's not scripted and you're literally just letting things fly, like you're in sort of free flow, you're really saying what you're genuinely thinking at the moment. You're really listening to what someone else is saying. They talk, you talk, and there's this sort of uh, genuine exchange that goes on. And what I noticed is people really like that. They like authenticity. They, they're attracted to it. And I was thinking, yeah, this might be the best way. This might be one of the better ways to do it. Plus, I was seeing the waves that like people like Joe Rogan were making in that particular field. And I was thinking, OK, uh, I mean, I understand like he was on Fear Factor. He, he was already famous. He's a comedian, whatever. But it, it was interesting to sort of see the like I did see what his process was like. I was I. I know him since like before he even started. I don't know him, but I, I'm aware of him since before he started podcasting. And I saw the whole process. I saw when he started doing uh, Vimeo and it was horrible camera equipment, horrible mics. And he's just hanging out with his friends. It's like a genuine, you know, vibe there. And I was thinking, yeah, I, I mean, I'd like to do that. Plus, um, I don't know. I, I never liked the scripted method of giving out information. Although there is a, if you do that perfectly, there is a utility to it. So I guess to each their own, as far as that goes. Yeah. And I mean, to add on to that, we genuinely had questions. So um, as I'm sure you can already kind of tell, right, these are like really topics that we're just genuinely interested in. And so when we started the podcast, initially, pretty much it was, um, it was a bit academic, like it was like him and I kind of like teaching, you know, our audience about like the first episode we did was like on flow states. And then as we kind of started going, and we thought, you know, we should really get guests on because we're obviously not experts in everything. And I mean, we do have limits on what we can talk about, obviously. So once we started getting guests on or thinking about getting guests on, we were thinking, okay, so what do we love, right? What is the show about? Philosophy and mental health. And often the two are so intertwined that it's actually difficult to tell between like what's philosophy and what's clinical. So if like, let's say for our audience, anybody listens to any of our shows and let's say we didn't tell say like, okay, this person is a philosopher and somebody that we have on next week is actually a perfect example of this. Um, so he, even though his book is technically philosophy and it's published under the philosophy section, it's actually more clinical than anything because he talks about feelings and managing them in a way that's more productive and conducive to your well-being, which is obviously very clinical, but still he's considered to be a philosopher. So what we thought is that, you know, hear all of these different ideas, as Alan was saying, that we, we don't really talk about or hear about, like, let's say, I don't know, on the nightly news or on CNN or whatever. So we don't really know how to become better people. All we really know about is like all the garbage that's going on in the world, which obviously has its merit. And I mean, we do need that information, but there aren't many news shows or many shows in general, like sort of helping us grow and helping us develop. So when we decided to start bringing about guests, we figured, okay, what is it that we could sort of bring that adds value that we can't particularly give? Who are, let's say, the experts that can sort of not only teach our audience, but teach us as well. So the way we kind of try to frame, maybe not so much at the beginning, I mean, I, I don't want to sort of sound like, oh, I always knew like what it was going to be because probably didn't. Uh, but the way we try to frame it now is that what is it that the audience would want to know from this particular person? So if we can do that, then what we can say to ourselves is, okay, 
we can kind of frame it from the perspective of the audience. And what is it that this person has to teach that, let's say, is not widely available or something that, let's say, unless you are taking a college course or you're in that person's course, you wouldn't actually learn. Um, if, let's say, somebody has a different take on a particular topic than is even, let's say, mainstream or academic, then what is it that this person has to offer that can help, you know, let's say us and help the audience? What is it that they can kind of give that's really not available everywhere? So, I mean, like, I don't know how niche our podcast is because, I mean, there are philosophy podcasts available, but why we love the pretty much the theme of public philosophy so much is because it takes this particular topic that everybody... Okay, let me not generalize, but that most people find to be really terrifying because when you think of, oh my God, philosophy, I'll never understand this, yeah. right? How many people think that? So, and if we take this topic and we say, no, not only will you understand it, but you're also going to be able to use it in your day to day. So it's like, even if let's say you're in therapy or even if you're sort of reading books on psychology or self-help or whatever, that's great. And all of this is this wonderful addition. And it's this great field that if you just give it like two seconds of your time, you'll really find how useful it is to you. Mm. I'm really struck in both of your personal stories about how philosophy was really like a mechanism to just understand your own experiences and the people around you and to understand yourself. And like, that's not normally how I think most people think about philosophy, right? I think the, the sort of dominant image of a philosopher is like someone with elbow patches and a blazer sitting in a dusty library pouring over books in a language, you know, and in, in, you know, I don't know, like an indecipherable ancient language or something. Right. So I'm, I'm wondering how you, or if you could talk a bit more about how public philosophy or making uh, some of these sometimes abstract and complicated concepts more accessible and available works for you. How do you engage with this material and make it exciting and come alive and feel relevant and applicable to the day-to-day -day things that your viewers and listeners are encountering. So that's a really great question. And so thankfully for us, we don't actually, we're not starting from scratch. So there's already a wonderful foundation for us. So, and I want to really quickly give a shout out to our friend Sky Cleary. So Sky Cleary is the one who pretty much made our podcast happen this year because she's connected us to so many of these different guests that we've had, so many wonderful just thinkers and writers and academics. So just to answer your question, the ideas with public philosophy, a lot of the work is already done for us. So it's like, if you just know where to look, you'll be able to pretty much to bring it, kind of bring it out and bring it to the public and you'll be able to digest it. So uh, one of the books that comes to mind is the recent one, um, How to Live a Good Life. We've had, I'm sure you've seen a bunch of the philosophers from that book on our show. And so How to Live a Good Life is a highly accessible book for literally anybody. So if we're looking to figure out what is it that's most useful, I mean, public philosophy has already been, it's been a field that's already been kind of like, I don't know if, it, if maybe not prominent, but it's already kind of like widespread or at least you know widespread enough for us to be able to sort of find it. And so the wonderful thing is if you look at some of the literature, it's already available to you. So all we're really doing is we're taking that and we're like, here's this media platform that we're using and we're just sort of merging the two together. So thankfully for us, we don't really have to do anything that's too original. It's already there. We're just sort of providing the platform. For so there's that. There's that aspect to it, but it's also the fact that since we're actually engaging with the material and people are listening to us engage with it, it's different than sort of reading it or having it read to you if you're listening on Audible or something like that. Although that has, again, its merit and its value. Um, by listening to us actually have a conversation, especially with an expert, let's say we're talking about uh, uh, Massimo Piliucci, right? He's talking about uh, Stoic philosophy. 
Well, the, first of all, he's just an interesting guy in, in the first place. I love his accent. I love his demeanor. I love his energy. Everything. He's just a like cool guy, you know, as far as that goes. And then you actually, you hear him. Uh, he sounds very relatable. And he starts to talk about Stoic philosophy, uh, different uh, tenets in it, um, reactive thinking versus uh, non-reactive thinking. And just sort of the, the way it's broken down in conversation, I just feel like it makes it more... Mm, relatable to people because it's one it's also we get nuanced about it too it's not like we're just giving you what is stoic philosophy here's the definition yeah. and then although that uh, to it's, be a fair, it's a part to be fair mm. that's not really done in books either it yeah. really is <laughs> of course in books they do you know elucidate the subject more right, right. but mm, like Leon said, it's like we're giving a platform to to something that already has a tremendous uh, foundation. And just in, in conversation, through different tonal pitches, through just our own excitement, through the guest excitement, it yeah. just makes it more digestible. Um, or sorry, let me put it this way. It makes a, a section, a, a portion of the audience resonate with it that would not have resonated with other forms of being exposed to philosophy let's put it that way and if i could even like let's say kind of try to conceptualize what we do i think it would be like akin to being in the classroom and we're like the students that try to ask all of the questions that everybody has <laughs> yeah. so so our audience could kind of understand let's say if there's something that they missed in the book version of it uh-huh so you're the disruptive students getting everyone <laughs> off the lesson plan <laughs> <laughs> actually we do do that yeah actually we do do that we do all go off of plenty of tangents so yes yeah. And sometimes we don't know, um, like what it, this, for example, we'll have, uh, again, we'll have a Massimo on, let's say we don't know everything there is to know about Stoic philosophy, then we sort of take the, the position of our listeners by asking questions like, what is all this about? How, how can I live this way? You know, uh, maybe there are things that we, we kind of get. So sometimes we say things that sounds like, okay, we do know something, but Coming from another point of view, it's like, yeah, we also represent the listeners, uh, which is which is interesting as well. Yeah. And then also, since you brought up Massimo, I think it's really important for me to add. Um, so because uh, I mean, because I guess our background's a little bit different. Obviously, Massimo is a philosopher and I'm a you know, clinical you know, mental health counselor clinician. So the interesting thing with that episode of Massimo is going back to philosophy and its importance. There was something he actually taught me on the show that almost literally changed my whole sort of framework of therapy, which was mm. like, wow, right? Because you would think like, oh, like, what is a philosopher going to teach a therapist, right? So, um, so on the the show we were talking about what it means to sort of be a rational actor and you know how reason is like academically kind of like the pinnacle of like let's say your being right mm -hmm. and so he talked about how going back to plato reason was put on a pedestal and i said something along the lines of well like yeah you know even in therapy i mean the point is to get like the person to be a more rational actor in their lives right reason has to be like at the forefront and then you know it has to control emotions um actually no so his conception was different and it was super helpful to me so it was something that took me a really i would say a reason amount of time to figure out. And it was something that I now apply to my therapy sessions and even to my writing. So Massimo actually said, when you talk about reasons and the emotions, right, it's not that one has to control the other. There has to be a harmony between the two. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about harmony, that means there has to be an agreement. Whereas like the emotions and the reason aren't intentioned with one another, where they're in agreement. And obviously that agreement has to also be based on reality, because obviously it's also possible for reason and kind of your emotional side or your intuition to be in agreement and you'd be being disconnected from reality, which is a bad thing. But the point is, 
that it's not that reason has to sort of like bludgeon the emotions and sort of tell you like, no, you, you feel like you're a failure. You're being irrational. You can't feel that way. You need to think of the world more realistically. You need to think of yourself more realistically. Like, no, there's actually some truth in your emotional responses. And what Massimo helped me see was that when the reasons and the emotions work together, essentially what you get is the pinnacle of health. Obviously it's idealistic. And I mean, but that's what we strive for. But the point is that from him, and from his perspective, for somebody who is a philosopher rather than a therapist, I was able to apply that in a completely or almost completely different field. And I thought that was really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like this idea that even as you all are sort of curating the material or, or bringing it to people or teaching it in a certain way, you're also learning from it. I think, mm -hmm. I mean, this is even true for, for me in my academic classroom. When I'm teaching, I'm also learning from my students. I think this is something that academics... Um, don't talk about very much, that it's very much a two-way relationship between students and teacher or audience and, and host maybe in this case. Mm -hmm. um, and I really loved that example that you just gave Leon about your, your uh, practice being really shifted by something that a philosopher, you know, an idea that a philosopher um, exposed you to. Uh, and I was wondering if you, both of you have talked about both psychology and philosophy in your personal stories and in the podcast. Um, I think normally in academic philosophy, there tends to be this really, you know, huge division between psychology and philosophy, where these are two totally different things. You go to, you know, if you have a question about like the nature of reality, go talk to your philosopher. If you have a question about dealing with your own emotions or your own brain, go talk to a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I'm interested if you can talk about how and why you bring these two areas together and how they sort of work off each other. Like what does philosophy have to learn from psychology and what does psychology have to learn from philosophy? Oh, that's a really good question. So I, well, I mean, obviously I already mentioned kind of existential angst and how like learning philosophy was soothing to me, but even just to go back to Alan's idea, I mean, the understanding is, so let's say if we just were to conceptualize philosophy broadly, right. As like this love of truth or this love of wisdom, right. So from Alan's perspective, when we're talking about the ego, if we're like sort of deeply entrenched in our beliefs, right. We're technically not lovers of wisdom or we're not lovers of truth, right. What we actually want is to kind of protect ourselves in that understanding of what truth is or our understanding of truth is. So if we were to kind of merge the two together, what we could say is that, let's say psychology or maybe psychology in terms of, uh, let's say mental health or the pinnacle of whatever that looks like would be to sort of accept that it's okay to be wrong, that it's okay to actually be a philosopher, right? In this kind of broad sense, it's okay to look for truth. It's okay to admit your mistakes. It's okay to be a seeker with this other person who's a seeker with you. He's not trying to defeat you. He's trying to learn right, right along with you. And so what I love about kind of Alan's conception of the ego is that it's so like perfectly philosophical, right? It's like, you're saying that, Hey, you, right. You should actually be on the verge or on the sort of on the lookout for truth, right? You should be on the lookout for things that are going to not only enhance your life, obviously, but just about like, you should be curious. You should sort of try to figure out what is this whole thing about? And this other person with you, he's not your enemy. He's trying to actually, or should be trying to do the same. Yeah. And I guess if I had to be, um, well, first of all, the, the, the concept of the ego exists in both psychology yes. and philosophy, as far as that goes. So that's kind of where the two meet as far as ego is concerned, as far as just combining philosophy and psychology in general, I mean, I feel like they really do go hand in hand at many times. Like I, I'll just give an example, I suppose, uh, logical fallacies, mm -hmm. let's say, right. Wouldn't that be useful to know 
from a psychological standpoint, mm -hmm. uh, if you're meeting with a not even just a client, just like another person in general, and you're able to sort of detect logical fallacies or see that uh, someone's uh, straw manning your argument or something like that, I'm just making it up. Uh, yeah, if you could detect that, then you'd be able to reason uh, more easily and maybe come to truth together with whoever you're speaking with. Not always. It's not always so ideal and so nice, right? But then also maybe you wouldn't uh, necessarily accept what somebody says either because you're detecting that logical fallacy. Right. Um, maybe if uh, from the philosophical end... Um, mm, now I'm kind of blanking here, well, I but I think it's it's important to know to know that there's a, for example, nuance is, is an important uh, thing to to understand, right? And I think nuance exists in in both, right? Like right. you, it's not just a strict philosophical principle or a psychological principle to understand that there's there's more to something than meets the eye. Sometimes you want to know, for example, in terms of psychology, like why does somebody think? what they're thinking like why are they that different from me how did they come to their conclusion are they really crazy as my initial impulse is telling me mm -hmm. or is it that maybe the way they reasoned it from their value system they think this is true and maybe if i understood their value system at least even if i don't agree with them we don't necessarily have to fight and get into i don't know uh like a fits of uh, tribalism or, or or things like that. And it, it's nice to know certain concepts because then it keeps you from, again, from unnecessary suffering, unnecessary conflict. Right. Um, and sorry, you're going to... No, yeah. And then so if to chalk it up to anything, I would say philosophy has in terms of teaching, right? So philosophy can teach psychology essentially how to think and the fallacies of thinking. And then psychology can teach philosophy why thinking and why thinking fallacies are important to one's well-being and one's growth. Mm. Nice. Uh, I like that, that idea of like how, why this is important to your growth um, or to your well-being. And something, Leon, that you've said on your own blog is to think about ideas as medicine. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you wanted to expand on that. And also, obviously, Alan, please, like, I want to hear if this is a phrase that resonates with you and your own thinking. Like, what does it mean for ideas to be medicine? Okay, wow. I'm actually really happy you asked that question. So, um, and this obviously is uh, super intertwined with philosophy. So the idea is that essentially the truth or certain truths that you figure out or find out or somebody teaches you, they can actually be healing in the sense of, let's say if somebody's super depressed, right? And let's say going back to Alan's statement of fallacious thinking. So let's say I'm engaging. So we know that depression is linked to all sorts of fallacies. It's linked to overgeneralization. It's linked to black and white thinking, uh, mental filtering, right? So if let's say somebody's thinking that way, where they're thinking my life is horrible. Um, I have not, let's say they're feeling hopeless. I have nothing to look forward to. Nothing ever goes well um, because I'm never going to be great. That means I'm always going to be terrible. So in that respect, if somebody can give you a new idea or can give you a more sort of holistic or a more rational perspective on life, on your life, what they can do is they can help alleviate your symptoms, obviously considering or providing that you accept their conclusions, which hopefully as the therapy process goes on, it kind of makes it a little bit easier for you to accept. So when we think about ideas being medicine, the point is that let's 
say if you give somebody a pill, right, obviously it changes their brain chemistry and it makes it actually more likely that they're going to have a healthy form of thinking. So it's kind of a misconception that people have that like, let's say with mental illness, that the pill actually cures the depression. It's actually not that simple. So the pill, right, provides sort of the person with enough kind of, um, let's say, stimulus, internal stimulus to go through therapy and to actually go through the cognitive processes of thinking. So whereas what happens is if, let's say, a person who needs medication isn't medicated, what they'll do is they'll give you a million and one reasons why their thinking is wrong. I'm sorry, why their thinking is right or why your thinking is wrong. And they won't actually want to take the time to, or they won't have the energy to take the time to actually to actually think things through. They're going to kind of be stuck in that. Um, and they're going to be convinced, obviously. And that's kind of how it works with brain chemistry. I mean, unfortunately, I don't know enough about it to say exactly how the link works, but I mean, we do know from research that it does and, you know, from clinical presentations. But the point of ideas being medicine is that even if, let's say, you provide somebody with medication, what that does is it allows them to at least open themselves up to reinterpreting their worlds. And it's the reinterpretation itself that's the curative or the healing factor. So ideas being medicine, philosophy being medicine, just like I, as the kid, was sort of healed in that respect, whatever, not really healed, but at least managed um, by figuring out or by believing in, let's say, Plato's version of the afterlife, Plato's version of morality, of forms of sort of this perpetual growth that you can go through, that you're constantly reincarnating, that you're sort of building towards something, that in some way, even if something terrible happens to you, it's okay because it's part of this bigger picture. So all of that is healing in the sense of it makes you believe that there's something out there that's um that's sort of good for you. So it's like there's something out there that's good for you. And if we're talking about reconceptualizing ideas that you have of yourself, it's also that there's something inward or something inwardly about you that's also good about you too. So ideas being medicine just means sort of, and again, in a nutshell, sort of seeing the bigger picture of life and seeing the bigger picture of who you are and that being sort of conducive to and contributing to like, say, either the sustenance of or the improvement of your mental well-being. And to, to sort of tag that, um, when, when somebody has a, a map or model of how they think the world works, generally speaking, anything that falls outside of that model or outside of that belief system causes them to, to react, to, to sort of to behave um, rigidly, generally speaking. Um, but in a way, ideas are medicine in that if somebody were to actually be um, open to accepting new information, they can open their world up. They can expand their horizon, so to speak. Right? They they can then see things in a in a different way. And the thing is, there there is a value to having a rigid view of the world in the sense that you could become very bullheaded, very stern, very certain of how the world works. And people respond to certainty. Uh, they they love certainty for sure. That's definitely a great quality of a of a leader. Okay, but at the same time being able to be flexible, being able to adapt to new information, to sort of uh, take things as they come, even if it's not part of your map or your model, that's, that's incredibly important. And yeah, idea, so ideas. So are you saying ideas that are medicine in terms of like the social relationships? Like they're sort of healing the community, like the strive for, let's say kind of the kind of chaos within it? I mean, that's that's one way of looking at it. I also feel like it cures the chaos and the strife in, in yourself as well. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, if uh, I mean, you have to be a certain kind of person, I suppose, to really care about how you uh, react and to things and, and stuff like that. But uh, I suppose if you do care about that, then, yeah, it's it's important to take in new ideas and to to learn more and and to know that you don't know everything 
that makes you uh, more humble in terms of uh, conversations with people. They, they may, I mean, again, it depends who we're talking about, what you resonate with, but generally speaking, people value when somebody is honest with uh, themselves and with you. Right. And if you honestly know, don't know something and you're not afraid to, uh, to, to ask or uh, to say that you don't know, I mean, that that's incredibly valuable. Yeah. And philosophy, yeah. at least ideally speaking, makes it okay to not know, or it makes it okay to search for more answers or kind of for more evidence, sure. which is why I obviously, I mean, I think we all love Socrates, right? I mean, he was like sort of the pinnacle of being a philosopher that here was this guy who, I mean, you would think was a genius. And I mean, clearly was, but the thing is like, in his mind, he's like, no, I'm not. I'm always in this sort of quest for truth and applying another kind of form of applying philosophy to psychology is actually, we're all supposed to be as like Socrates as therapists. So we might have certain preconceived notions and that's actually okay. The problem is when certain clinicians become married to their preconceived notions. So let's say if you diagnose somebody, right, you already have a stereotypical view of what this person is like outside of that diagnosis, or rather even you can even have a conception of what that person is like solely reducing them to that diagnosis. So whereas like if you take, in, uh, if you take philosophy into consideration, the idea is like, no, you're always searching for more information. The diagnosis itself, even if let's say you're right, which a lot of times, by the way, we're actually wrong about our diagnoses initially which is like kind of not something we talk about in the field, but it's true. Uh, but the point is that even if you have the initial diagnoses and even if you find out that it's correct, you're still always searching for more information. You're always searching for the why as opposed to the presentation, which is like great. And it gives you like a foundation, but the why is just as important as what they're presenting with. And just one more thing to add. Uh, sometimes, uh, I mean, I don't know how true this is because I don't have my uh, uh, finger on the pulse of society, let's say. But I like to imagine that, for example, when we introduce, uh, I don't know, uh, a podcast on, uh, let's say, mindfulness or meditation or being present to the moment, maybe people, when they first hear that concept or in general, when they think about it in the mainstream aspect, they think of spirituality, let's say, and they think, no, 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 I don't resonate with that or, or something like that. But then maybe we'll have somebody on and they'll actually distill it in such a practical sort of way that's very digestible for someone to sort of resonate with and, and relate to that in that sense, like that, that particular idea is medicine as well to this preconceived notion of what they thought it was. And uh, one thing I, I like about our podcast is there be, we try to distill things in a way that's as practical as possible. Again, like going back to, let's say meditation, instead of framing it as like the spiritual thing, which by the way, it is respect to that. And I, I, I love it. It's, but if you're trying to, let's say, uh, hit as many people as possible, may, maybe you don't want to, uh, you want to carefully tailor how you're presenting certain information. So this way, as many people as possible, can can relate to it different people have different uh perspectives on that though somebody might say no 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 you really should aim for that niche audience this way you know uh who your audience is and you're tailoring everything to that specific group so i i, I see the logic in that too but i guess there's different schools of, of thought on that so sure so you all have talked a lot about taking these ideas, philosophical and psychological, and distilling them or translating them into a more digestible, accessible, practical, concrete sort of way for your listeners. 
Um, and I want to give you the opportunity to sort of speak the other way, which is to say, like, if you could say something or make an ask of or give some advice to professional philosophers, what would that be? What would you like to see professional philosophy get better at so that your job is easier? Okay. So, all right. And that's interesting. I, I would like, um, I would like there to be more, uh, I suppose, for lack of an original thought, uh, more <laughs> podcasts, actually, yeah. more conversations uh, between uh, academics, uh, professional philosophers, uh, people from different fields, see how different fields sort of come together and uh, how they can, how they can work together. And I, I think that if, um, because here's the thing, I, I think we've even had guests before too, who uh, will say like, oh, you know, the, the academic journals, like I read them, but I definitely know the public doesn't really uh, get into it, right? And I don't blame the public for that. Um, I think it's all in the presentation. I think presentation matters and framing. So if, if we could have, yeah, more, more conversations, more ways, or, or you know what? beyond even that maybe option option b like something i didn't even think of like some creative way to just present uh the most essential knowledge in some creative form that gets the spread to a wider audience right it doesn't necessarily have to be a podcast it could be something else it could be through music it could be through mm -hmm. art right I, my mind is not necessarily going there, mm -hmm. but uh, that's because that's just not my lane, but I'm sure that could be done as well. And I hope to see that. Yeah. And my answer is going to be simple that you guys can just chill on the jargon. So I've <laughs> always, always, always struggled with academic literature. So, I mean, even when I was in graduate school, I actually didn't read it. So um, that was like kind of, I mean, it's a whole thing. And I always used to get, um, my professors used to give me shit for it because I would like a lot of times not do the readings. And I mean, look, if, you know, maybe they could take a little bit of blame for that and say, well, these readings are kind of filled with jargon. And I don't want to look up every word or like every other word on every sort of page, you know? So for my from my thinking is that like, there's definitely a place for that. I don't want to discredit it altogether. Obviously, if you're going to write it in an academic journal, most definitely. I mean, that's the purpose. It's supposed to be circulated in the field amongst your colleagues. I get it. But um, there are actually a lot of public philosophy, like let's say books that are put out obviously for the mainstream and they're insanely hard to read. I mean, they are, there's, mm -hmm. there are books that I've read for like philo public philosophy books that I've had to read over at least 10 different times because I just couldn't get it the first couple of times. So yeah, chill on the jargon. It's okay. You don't have to use it like super eloquent words will and if anything we'll all appreciate you more for it awesome <laughs> so i only have one last question for you and it's if you if your uh, listeners could walk away with your podcast from your podcast with like one one thing one insight one shift in perspective what would that be oh okay wow one just one right just one <laughs> Okay. Mm. Do you have something already or can I go? I, I do. Yeah. Sure. I suppose critical slash nuanced thinking mm -hmm. uh, is, is important just to, just to know that there is more going on to either someone's perspective, to a particular situation, uh, to, to whatever is being presented to you than meets the eye. There's something you're not seeing that you should attempt to try to see in order to have more of a complete picture. There's a, there's a saying, uh, there's uh, three sides to every story. 
your side, my side, and the truth, right? And I think it's it's important to keep that in mind. I think if everyone had this that critical thinking or nuanced thinking sort of skill, that would eliminate many problems in society. I'm sure Leon probably thought I was going to say, learn what the ego is. I knew he was I like, wait, <laughs> that. I, I definitely, I definitely think that too, but uh, I suppose nuanced thinking would handle many problems in, in society if I had to break it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess my lesson would be that first of all, growth is important. And then the other thing is that essentially it's important because we're all growing. So if there's anything that anybody could take away from our show is that especially I know obviously one would not think this, but even with our guests, they talk to us about the mistakes that they've made. They speak to us about things that they didn't understand or things that were difficult for them. Um, Sort of their sort of understanding of philosophy and how that changed. Their sort of ways of finding the truth that let's say, or that, well, yes, their, I guess, ways of finding the truth, but certain truths that they were led to that maybe initially weren't truths to them at first. So for us, I wanted to be kind of, I wanted to be clear that we as best as we can, and I'm not saying we do this all the time, but we try to be vulnerable because we want our audience to understand that again philosophy sort of mental health intertwined together that it's it's the process of growth essentially and that it's okay to make mistakes it's okay to admit that you're wrong it's okay to be flawed our guests are flawed we're flawed i just said i don't understand a lot of the academic literature that's okay so you don't have to be afraid of philosophy you don't have to be afraid of this field you pretty much it's we're all kind of learning and we're all in this together and that's cool right it it we can sort of be academics in some sense even amateur academics and we can sort of still feel good about ourselves Thank you so much for that. Um, It's been a real pleasure talking to you all. I really appreciate your time. You as well. And and if we wanted to uh, follow you and follow your work, uh, where could we follow you? Uh, Well, if you want to follow my academic work, uh, you can follow me at academia.edu slash Ashley Bohr. And I'm all over the Google, you know? (laughs) Really, um, anyone who is interested in learning more about public philosophy should follow the American Philosophical Association's blog. uh, And I'm the public philosophy editor uh, on the blog. So you'll see not so much things that I'm writing or saying, but um, contributions that I'm helping bring from the whole world of public philosophy, um, both academic philosophers and non-academic philosophers and podcasters and artists and and all kinds of people who are are contributing to public philosophy sort of into one place. Absolutely. And I mean, thank you so much for doing this. This interview was really wonderful and lovely. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, Take care. (laughs) Right, Ashley. This was super fun. Talk to you soon. (laughs) Talk to you. Bye. Bye. I'm always bad at the Especially because this is kind of like an unusual one for us. That's right. But yes, if you want to follow us, follow us at (laughs) Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on uh, Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell. And then also you can find us at the O4L Online Network at O4LOnlineNetwork.com. And you can find us on top under the STM podcast section. All right, guys. Thanks so much for watching and see you next time.